I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. We're looking today at Revelation chapter 3. If you'd like to use the red Bibles in the chairs around you, you'll find our passage on page 1030. Today we're coming to the final letter that Jesus wrote to these various churches that we've been looking at over previous weeks. Uh, churches in Asia Minor in the first century. It really is a vision that John received that started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 17. And in all of chapters 2 and 3, we have these letters that were written to these individual churches. And Jesus comes now to the final church, the church in Laodicea. So listen as I read to you from chapter 3, verses 14 down through verse 22. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm... And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that the same Spirit who brought this word to the angel of the church in Laodicea was given to John and then given to these people. That same Spirit that opened their hearts and their eyes to see these wonderful things that you wrote to them. We pray, Father, for that same Holy Spirit to be at work here today in this very room, in this very moment. Open our eyes, too. Open our hearts. Father, I pray that you would make us receptive to your word. Bury it deeply within us, that we truly might grow in our knowledge and our love for you. For the glory of the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have you had an experience with the beast? Now, I recognize us being in the book of Revelation makes that a little bit of an unusual question to ask. And so let me explain. My wife Stephanie and I grew up in a little town in Indiana that was in the eastern central part of the state. It was about 90 minutes from the city of Cincinnati. And Cincinnati had the closest amusement park uh, to anywhere else that we might go. 
Now, as I was growing up as a young child, we didn't go to amusement parks very much. I didn't uh, learn to love roller coasters that much. But as I got older and became a teenager, our friends started going more and more down to Kings Island, which was the place in Cincinnati uh, where we would go to uh, the amusement park. And I can remember the very first time that I rode the biggest and the baddest and the most well-known roller coaster at Kings Island. It was called and is called The Beast. It was known not only in the area, but even worldwide as being one of the best roller coasters. The Beast opened in 1979. And when it opened, and for many years thereafter, it was the tallest, fastest, and longest wooden roller coaster in the world. 7,359 feet long, covering 35 acres of ground. The ride lasts more than four minutes. You begin by climbing a hill that then at the very beginning you drop 141 feet straight down into a turn and immediately into a pitch black tunnel. And when you get to the tunnel, you're going 64.8 miles per hour. Over this past summer, I noticed that they reached over 54 million riders on the beast. I remember the first time that I rode the beast. In fact, it was one of the very first times I had ever been on a roller coaster. We waited in a long line and eventually we made it up to the front and we boarded the roller coaster. Now, because the friends that I was with knew that this was not only the first time being on the beast, but one of the first times of being on a roller coaster, they put us in the first cars because that's where things get really exciting. And I remember as I sat down in the car and the metal, uh, the metal beam came down and locked into place, doubts began to come over my mind. What am I doing? Because they make you sit there for a little while to build the tension before off you go. And the doubts and the fear in my face must not have been something that I was just keeping internal because the ride attendant came over to me and then said something to the equivalent of this. He said, you're either all in or get the heck off of the train. Well, I want you to let you know that I made it through. I made it through that first run. I stuck it out. I survived my first beast experience, and there have been many more since then. You're either all in or get the heck off the train. He was saying, essentially, there's no room for doubts. There's no room for being lukewarm. There's no room for being complacent in this moment because of what you're about to experience. You need to be all in or you need to get out. There's a little bit of a sense in which Jesus is saying something similar to this church. In fact, he tells them that they're lukewarm. Except this letter has so much more at stake than riding a roller coaster in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is the last of these seven letters that Jesus is writing to these seven individual churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And when we come to this letter... Unlike almost all of the other letters that he's written, there are no encouraging words for, from Jesus here to, these, to this church. There is nothing that he commends them for. There is only rebuke, 
and a call for repentance. And in fact, there are some of the harshest words from Jesus in any of the letters here in this letter to the church in Laodicea. This letter also has some of the more well-known words in these letters, some of the more famous words, not only within the church, but even outside of the church. He's wishing that they were either hot or cold, but he calls them lukewarm. And he says, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's a fairly well-known phrase that we use in our everyday lives from time to time. Another very well-known passage comes in verse 20. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If anyone hears my voice, he says, and opens the door, I will come in. And I think we'll see here in just a minute that those two verses are some of not only the best known verses, but also the most misunderstood and misapplied verses, perhaps in the entire New Testament. Perhaps this is the most applicable letter for Christians living in the United States in 2019. So let's look and see what Jesus says to these people and how we might take this and understand it for us as well. Let's look at the problem that Jesus addresses with them, the remedy that he supplies, and then the promise that he provides to them. So first of all, the problem that Jesus brings to them. Now, Jesus has got some very difficult, harsh words that he's about ready to say to them as he begins to tell them the problem that he has with this church. And he knows that these words are going to be hard. These words are going to be harsh. And so he begins, like he does the other letters, by listing some of his characteristics. We get that in verse 14. And in particular, what he's doing here is he's giving the people of Laodicea the reason, the reminder for why they need to listen to what he's going to tell them. In a sense, what he's doing, he's he's saying, here are my credentials. This is the reason why you need to listen even to these very difficult words that I need to say to you. So how does Jesus describe himself? How does he list his credentials? Well, the first thing he says is that he is the... Amen. That word amen in our English language comes directly from the Greek word amen. And it means truly or verily. In fact, some of your translations in various places in the Gospels in particular, Jesus will say something like truly, truly, I say to you or verily, verily, I say to you. It's the word amen. Amen, amen. Literally means truth. Jesus is saying he is the one who is absolutely reliable, completely trustworthy. The word amen means let it be so. As Jesus speaks, may it be so. He also refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. That is that he bears witness to God and to the word of God faithfully and truthfully. There is never error or deception in what Jesus says to these people or in any part of what Jesus says. And then lastly, he tells them that he is the beginning of God's creation. Now that phrase there doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one that was created. It's more talking about the fact that Jesus is the source of all creation. Just as we read in John 1, 1, that Jesus was The Word and the Word was with God and the Word through the Word all was created. It also brings us back to what we read in our call to worship this morning in Colossians chapter 1. 
There Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. When Jesus says that he is the beginning of God's creation, it's all of those words that Paul wrote in Colossians 1 flooding in. He is the one with authority. He is the one who has all truth. He is the one who faithfully and truthfully bears witness about who God is. So he begins the letter by saying, You need to listen to me because I am Jesus, the truth. I have all authority. I am the faithful witness. And through the power of my resurrection, you must listen and obey. So what was the problem that he brought to them? Well, you can see that very simply stated in verses 15 through 17. He tells them, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the problem that Jesus is bringing to these people. This church, they think that they're fine. They think that they're doing fine. They think that they don't need anything. They are self-sufficient in their own mind. And what Jesus is telling them is that their self-sufficiency and their desire to be dependent upon no one except for themselves has led them... To be complacent, to be lukewarm in their love for the Savior. Now, what does Jesus mean when he calls them lukewarm? Well, he gives them a couple illustrations from their own city context uh, here in the passage. The first is in verses 15 and 16, and the second is in verse 17. This shows us how important it is to understand uh, the context, the historical context, and even the geographical context of this city in order to understand what Jesus is saying. The first illustration he gives them is from their own local water supply. As we'll see here in just a minute, this was an extremely wealthy city. And not only was it wealthy, they were resourceful and they had so much of what they needed all within their own city with one big exception. They had no fresh water source. There was a river that ran through the city, the Lycus River, but it was known to be very dirty and muddy and it was undrinkable. And so they had two other options. One was uh, a city about 11 miles away, the city of Colossae, where we get the letter to Paul to the Colossians. actually makes reference to Laodicea in that letter. About 11 miles away was Colossae, the city of Colossae. And they had a cold mountain spring in that city. They were known in the area for this incredibly refreshing water that they could drink. The other option was about five or six miles away, a city called Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, they had a hot spring that had a great amount of calcium carbonate in it. And it was known as being 
healing waters, medicinal, restorative. But the problem was is that they were so far away. And so there was an aqueduct system, a piping system that went to Colossae and to Hierapolis so that this water could be brought to the people of Laodicea. By the time that the water came from Colossae, 11 miles away, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And the image that comes to my mind is as a boy growing up playing outside on hot summer days and being told by my mother not to come in if we were outside playing because we would bring in all the dirt and the, uh, the stuff we were involved in. And so we would get thirsty on those hot summer days. And so what would we do? We would go around the side of the house and we would find the hose that was hooked up to the house. The hose would be our source of drinking water. We're parched, we're hot, we're needing cold refreshment. So we would run to the hose and we would turn on the spigot, but that hose has been sitting in the grass and sitting in the sun. And so as you turn the spigot on and you put your mouth to the hose and you begin to drink, it's lukewarm water. Not what you want. Not what's refreshing. And so you would spit it out of your mouth and wait for the water to get cold. That's the water that would come from Colossae. It was lukewarm. The problem with Hierapolis was much the same. That water was hot. It was medicinal. It was, it was healing. It was restorative. But by the time it made the five or six mile journey from Hierapolis to Laodicea, it was no longer that hot water. It was lukewarm. And because of the high calcium carbonate concentration, it was undrinkable until it could be treated. In fact, if you drank the water from Hierapolis as it came to you immediately, it would cause headaches and nausea and even cause you to vomit the water out. You see what Jesus is saying here to these people? It's not what we usually think of. Jesus is not saying hot is good and cold is bad and you're neither and I just wish that you were one extreme or the other. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying to them, I wish that you were hot like that restorative healing water that comes, that hot water that comes from Hierapolis. Or I wish that you were cold like that refreshing mountain spring water that comes from the city of Colossae. But you're neither. You're not hot and restorative and healing. You're not cold and refreshing. You're lukewarm. You're of no use. And Jesus goes so far to say that they're making him sick to his stomach. They're making him nauseous. And so he's about to spit them out. The word there literally means to vomit. He's about to vomit them out of his mouth. There's another illustration to get at what Jesus to Jesus to get at what he's trying to help them understand of what they're like. It comes in verse 17. Verse 17 says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Again, we need to understand the historical context of this city. It's absolutely crucial to get what Jesus is telling these people. The city of Laodicea was known for three significant things. It was known for being incredibly wealthy and prosperous. Secondly, it was known for the black sheep in the area and the black wool that came from the black sheep. They would have these wonderful, beautiful, expensive garments that were made out of this black wool. Very unusual in the area. And then thirdly, the other thing that the city was known for was a medical school in the city. 
And this particular medical school had this, a specialty of helping people to, to uh, get healed from their eye diseases. There was a special rock that came around from that area. and They would grind it up into a powder and they would add some water to it and turn it into a paste, a salve. And then that was put on the eyes and it had a, a strong medicinal quality and all kinds of eye problems would be solved because of the salve uh, that they had at that particular medical school in Laodicea. So these are the things that the city is known for, not just in the people of the city, but even in the region. They were wealthy. They were a banking center and the city had all kinds of gold at their disposal. They had so much wealth that the story was told that in 60 AD there was a significant earthquake that happened in the area and a large portion of the city of Laodicea was destroyed. And as was the custom back then, the Roman Empire offered to give them money so that they could rebuild the city. And these people, because of how much wealth they had and how much pride they had and how much sense of self-sufficiency they had, told the Roman emperor, no thanks, we don't want your money. We're going to rebuild the city on our own, which is what they did. So this wealth, the black wool, the medical school, the specialty of this, this uh, salve that they put on the eyes. Now, understanding that context, look again at what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 17 to them. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, and then what? Poor, naked, and blind. Jesus is telling them, you don't understand what you're really like. You think we have all of this money. We are self-sufficient in everything. We don't have to rely on anyone, not even the Roman Empire, to help us rebuild our city. You think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You think that because you have all of this wonderful black wool and these wonderful garments that you clothe yourself in, that you have this wonderful clothing and yet you are naked you think that this eye salve that you've generated at this medical school is so wonderful in helping people to be able to see again and yet you're blind. In reality, they are spiritually poor, spiritually naked and spiritually blind, wretched and pitiable, he says. It's the exact opposite of what they think of themselves. They think they need nothing and Jesus is saying they have nothing and they need it all. This misperception of their condition of being fine, of being self-sufficient, has led them to be complacent and lukewarm in their love for Jesus. You can imagine that these people in this church was probably a, a really good-looking church. Probably had lots of things going on, lots of money to be able to disperse out and to use within their city for ministry. These people probably did all kinds of, of ministry in terms of gathering together to worship. And going through the motions of the Christian faith. But Jesus is saying deep down in your heart of hearts, there is no real connection, no real fellowship or communion with me as your Savior. And so he says hard things to them. You're making me sick to my stomach. And I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. These are strong, harsh 
and alarming words from Jesus. Now, before we look at the remedy that he offers to them, I want us to take just a moment and reflect how we might be tempted or might be in danger of falling into the same trap as these believers in Laodicea. You do know, of course, that we live in one of the wealthiest and most prosperous countries in the world, in one of the most wealthy and prosperous times in the history of the world. Especially if you compare ourselves with the rest of the world. The worldwide median household income, worldwide household income is $9,700. To put you in the top 1% of income earners in the world, all you need to do is earn $32,400 a year. The average total wealth of an adult in Africa is just a little bit over $4,000. That's total wealth, property, possessions, money. It is so easy for us living in this country at this time to begin to rely on our financial stability, our financial prosperity, our material blessings... And fall into a sense of self-sufficiency, complacency, of becoming lukewarm in our love for Jesus. I'm rich. I'm prosperous. I don't need anything. And Jesus says, you need everything. This is a temptation for every single one of us sitting in this room. It's also a temptation for us as a church to start thinking about success as a church as being primarily about more people coming in the door, more money coming in the door, or more buildings being built. We're in danger of being people like the people at Laodicea when our relationship with the Lord becomes lukewarm. When we go through the motions, maybe we come to worship. Maybe we're involved in the Sunday school programs. Maybe we're even in a Bible study or attending a small group, but we're simply just going through the motions of doing it. Inside, there's no real love, no real relationship, no real fellowship or communion with Jesus. And our motivation is out of whack. You see, we're no... We're, no far, we're not that far away from being in danger of falling into these very same things. But I want you to notice, here's the beginning of the good news. Jesus does not tell them that he has spit them out of his mouth. And he doesn't tell them that it's inevitable that he's going to spit them out. What he says is, he will spit them out. If they continue in their lukewarmness, if they continue in their disobedience, if they continue in showing that they're not truly God's people, then indeed they will be spit out. But he comes to them with a remedy to return to him. And so what is the remedy that he offers? Well, we see that in verses 18 through 20. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he to me. If the problem that Jesus is addressing with these people is their lukewarm, complacent, self-sufficient mindset, thinking that they need nothing, not realizing who they really are and their need for Jesus, then it makes sense that the remedy would be, the answer that Jesus would give to them is that they would come back to him and get what he provides. And that's what he says in verse 18, isn't it? You need to come to me and buy the things that you need. Verse 18 is almost certainly a reference that Jesus is making to Isaiah 55. Most of the commentators agree that when they read these words, that would have come up in their mind. And perhaps you don't remember Isaiah 55. I actually read it to us a few weeks ago during communion. But just listen as I read to you the first three verses. This is God speaking to his people. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love to David. In Isaiah 55, God is speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah and he's saying, people of God, don't run out there looking for things, thinking that that can bring you satisfaction in this life. Come to me, the ultimate source of satisfaction, and buy the choicest of food. And you don't even need money. Simply come to me and I will give it to you. That's what Jesus is referring to here when he tells them in verse 18. Come to me. You are complacent. You are lukewarm in your faith. But come to me. I am the one who offers what you need. And what is it that he offers? The first thing that he mentions is the gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Again, think about the context of that city. He's saying in contrast to this city that is full of gold, that is full of wealth, that's not going to get you what you need. What you need is spiritual gold that has been refined by fire. Often that phrase, gold refined by fire, is used in the scriptures to talk about a purified and holy life. Jesus is offering spiritual gold of a pure and holy life. That by putting our faith and trust in Him and His work on the cross, we are credited with the refined gold of His righteousness and His holiness. The second thing that He mentions that they can come to Him and that He will give to them are white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness. Again, in contrast to what they were known for. They were known for those, the black wool and those wonderful garments that were being made that they could dress themselves in and, and pride themselves in. And he's saying, you don't understand. You need spiritual white garments to cover you. 
And those white garments, as we'll see in other places in Revelation and indeed all of Scripture, white garments are referred to as the holiness of God, the holiness that is given to God's people, that they are justified in His sight. And Jesus is saying, you come with these wonderful, beautiful, expensive garments on, but what you don't, need, what you don't know is that you are spiritually naked and you need to come to me so that I might clothe you with my righteousness, my white garments. And then the third thing he mentions to them is that they need to buy salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see him. And again, using their own context in contrast to that world-renowned medical school and their eye specialists and the salve that they had developed, what he's telling them is, yes, you have this wonderful medicinal salve that you can use to help people's eyes get better, but you are spiritually blind. You can't see your true selves. You can't see me as being the ultimate solution of what you need. But come to Jesus and He'll open your eyes, He says. He'll enable us to see our need and He'll help us to see that we are not self-sufficient and it's not true that we don't need anything, that we need Jesus and all that He provides for us. So here's the remedy. Here's the remedy that He provides. He says, come to me and buy without money only what I can provide for you. Now what I want you to see is the real beauty of the gospel is not just that He calls us to come to Him, but the true beauty of the gospel is what we get in verses 19 and 20 because not only does Jesus have what we truly need, and not only does He call us to Himself to get what we need, but notice what Paul or what, uh, what we read here in Revelation that Jesus comes to us. That's what He gets at in verse 19 where He tells them, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus is saying, you are to come to me, but I'm coming to you. You are my people. I will not let you wander forever. I will not let you wander indefinitely because I love you too much. I will come and I will reprove you. I will bring conviction onto your heart. I will bring to light your need and the ways that you are looking for what you need outside of me as your Savior. I will reveal to you the truth. I will show you your lukewarm and complacent heart. He says that He disciplines us. He teaches us. He corrects us. The language that He's using here in verse 19 is the language of sonship. It's the language of adoption. It's the language of the family. It's the language of a father speaking to his child. And it isn't that what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus speaking says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the, love, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What Jesus is saying here, yes, come to me. I am the source of all that you need. But the beauty of the gospel is that the Savior comes to us. He loves us as His people. He loves us as His adopted children. And He pursues us as a father does a son. And will never abandon us. You can see this working itself out in verse 20 as well. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
I, I think this is one of the most extremely misunderstood and misapplied verses, perhaps in all of the New Testament. Almost always when I hear this verse quoted, it's about evangelism. It's about Jesus knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart, seeing if that unbeliever will open the door and allow him to come in. But do you see in the context, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not, is not knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart. He's knocking on the door of one of his treasured, beloved children. Most of the good commentators recognize that when Jesus here speaks about knocking on the door, it's a reference to, of all places in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, we have this wonderful picture of Solomon and his, and his bride, his wife. And they've been at a wedding or some kind of a party. And his wife, uh, perhaps she's tired, she's worn out, so she tells Solomon that she's going to go home early. And Solomon stays at the party a little while longer. You know, if she's, uh, she's worn out, she's tired, maybe she's a little out of sorts. But she goes home and she goes into their home and she begins to get ready for bed because she was tired. And so she takes off her party clothes and she puts on her pajamas. And she washes her feet, which you had to do in that culture before you would get into bed because your feet would be very dirty. So she gets all prepared, all ready for bed, and she gets into bed and she begins to fall asleep. And then Solomon, the king, and her husband comes home. And he comes to the door of his house and it's locked. And we're told in Song of Solomon that Solomon began to knock. He began to call out to his wife, Open up, my love. Open up, my dove, my sister, my perfect one. And we read that as the wife of Solomon hears the knock on the door, perhaps she was kind of in and out of sleep and she may have been dreaming a little bit, but she basically tells whoever's knocking, Go away! I'm in bed. I'm mostly asleep. I've washed my feet. I can't get my feet dirty again. Solomon won't take no for an answer. It's his house. He's the king. We're told that he's getting wet. It's raining. He's getting drenched outside. And so their doors were a little bit different than our doors. And he was able to reach in from the top, the gap at the top, and begins to try to get the latch. He's trying to get the latch open. And we're told that as his wife hears him, she comes to her senses and realizes, it's my husband. He's out in the rain. So she goes to the door and opens the door for Solomon. Do you see, that's the picture of what Jesus is saying here. He comes to us as his beloved bride. And he knocks on the door and he says, my love, my perfect one, let me in. It's the same language of a beloved husband coming home to his beloved wife that they might be together. As we see this beautiful and gracious image of the Lord coming to us, of calling us back to the message of the gospel, it reminds us of what Jesus told the church in Sardis. 
You can see that again at the beginning of chapter 3. And the solution that he gave to them is the same solution that he gives to the church in Laodicea. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says, The solution then is to remember what you received and heard, to keep it and to repent. That's very similar to what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What he's saying is the same thing. The remedy, the solution that he brings to them is this. Remember the gospel. Remember what you have believed from before. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has loved you from before the foundation of the world. He not only has covered all of your sins, but he has given you the righteousness of God credited to your account. And not only remember it, but keep it, believe it, cling to it, and repent. Turn back to Him. And as if to encourage and motivate us all the more, Jesus concludes His letter by giving them and us this promise in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father, on his throne. I'll confess to you, I don't completely know what that means. Don't completely understand what it's going to mean for, for us as God's people to sit on the throne with Jesus in the same way that the Father gave Jesus the throne. But it has some sense of this that the one who perseveres to the end, the one who endures to the end in faith, will be given a place of royalty and power and authority. He's talking about what it will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven. And although I'm not completely sure what it means, my mind goes back to what it must have been like from Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. And the royalty, the royal place that they had and the authority and the power that they had. He's talking about something that will be glorious and satisfying and fulfilling and fun. And everything that we need and desire as we glorify God for all eternity. So here's this letter that Jesus wrote to this church in Laodicea in the first century. It was given to an angel who then gave it to John, who then gave it to the Christians in Laodicea. They were people who thought they were good, that they were rich, that they were prosperous, that they didn't need anything, that they were self-sufficient. But that only led them to be complacent and spiritually lukewarm in their love for the Lord. And Jesus lovingly and powerfully called them back to himself to come to him and to buy without money what only he provides. And graciously and lovingly and sovereignly shows them that he actually goes to them and invites them back into fellowship with himself. This is the letter for the church in Laodicea. But this is the letter for you and me too. You may look at this and think, well, this was to them. This is not to me. But notice how Jesus finishes the letter. He does it actually in each of the letters that he wrote. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says only to the church in Laodicea in the first century. No, that's not what he said. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's you. That's me. That's us. All of God's churches throughout redemptive history. So I'll finish by asking you the question that I asked myself. Do you have an ear to hear? Let's pray together.
Father, if we're honest, we often can say that we don't have ears to hear. We need you to help us to have ears to hear. So often we are perhaps not only tempted, but find ourselves very much living like these Christians in Laodicea. And we hear these harsh words that you said to them, and we don't want those harsh words said to us. So help us, Father. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, take these words and burn them into our hearts and minds. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Clothe us with the white garments of Christ's righteousness. Burn us free of impurities. Give us the holy life that you desire. Help us to be more in love with Jesus this week than we were this past week. We pray it in his name. Amen.